Well, thank you, Rick. I'm thankful to be here with you. I'm thankful for this church. We have prayed for you for years and years. Hope you guys pray for us. I think there's probably closer affinity between Parker Hills and Redemption Parker than any other church in town, at least from our perspective. We share your love of the gospel, your um, attention to community, your careful attention to the Bible week by week on Sunday morning, your focus on mission. So we're thankful for your church. Thankful to Rick for the opportunity to preach here this morning. Thankful to Mark for being gone, making it possible. I'm also on sabbatical, which I guess makes it possible for me to be free to preach here. If you haven't already opened to Jeremiah 29, let me encourage you, open your Bibles there, grab your phone, look it up. And let me say this, I'm not sure, but I would imagine Jeremiah is probably not in the top five books chosen by guest preachers. It's probably not anywhere close to the top 25 books chosen by guest preachers. How many of you have ever heard a sermon from Jeremiah? All right, here we go. (laughs) But I believe it is the perfect book for our times. Listen to the setting of this book. See if any of this sounds familiar as I set up our text before we get into it. Jeremiah was written at a time of tremendous upheaval internationally and politically. Old empires were declining, namely Assyria and Egypt. New powers were rising, most particularly in this book, Babylon. The focal point of the book is the nation of Judah, what was left of God's chosen people who were still living in the promised land. But let me tell you, the glory for them has definitely departed. As you read the book of Jeremiah, you see a civilization in full meltdown. You watch with dismay as the nation of Judah crumbles right before your eyes, morally, politically, relationally. For decades, they've had nothing but bad leaders, including one who despises God but is very happy to use him in order to get fame and power. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. And another leader who's too weak and foolish to really do anything in terms of real leadership. They have an immigrant problem in Judah. They have an orphan problem. The rich and powerful are oppressing the poor and the weak. Fake news has become a full-blown industry as false prophets are getting rich and famous, making things up and gaining a following. The most outwardly religious people in the book of Judah often turn out to be the ones who are the biggest hypocrites, the worst liars and adulterers and thieves. No, I'm actually not describing the news feed on your chosen social media, at least not intentionally. This is the book of Jeremiah. Our text for today is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah to a handful of Jews who find themselves far from their home in Jerusalem, now living in Babylon. Look at verse one. Verse one set it all up. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and the priests, prophets, all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. There you have the people and the place and the position in which they find themselves. Jeremiah the prophet, position of authority. The surviving elders, which sounds a pretty grim note right at the outset, doesn't it? Something has happened which has caused some of the people to die, some of the leaders to die. 
But it's an open letter that he's written to all the people, the priests, prophets, and all the people. Another main character, Nebuchadnezzar. You see the places from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jerusalem's where Jeremiah is at this time. It's where the recipients of the letter used to live, but now they've been relocated to Babylon because of their position, which is exile. How did this happen? Well, history tells us Jerusalem did not fall all at once. Babylon actually made three passes. The first time, they weren't even focused on coming to Jerusalem. They were on their way down to Egypt. The Babylonians from the north came through Judah on their way to Egypt, and they turned Jerusalem into a vassal state. Jerusalem survived by swearing loyalty and paying tribute. That was about 605 BC. And at that time, Nebuchadnezzar took the first of the captives. That was when Daniel and his three friends were taken by Nebuchadnezzar eventually to Babylon. A couple of years later, Jerusalem rebelled, no longer paid tribute, no longer followed their oath of loyalty. And Nebuchadnezzar came back again, took their king, put a new king in his place. Zedekiah was his name and imposed tribute on them once again. That was the point, the second pass when Nebuchadnezzar took Ezekiel and various other people, the, the upper crust of Jewish culture. Well, Zedekiah was faithful for about 10 years, but in about 587, 586, he rebelled. And this time Nebuchadnezzar came with no mercy. Babylon destroyed the city, killed most of the people who lived there, took anyone who had anything to offer captive and burned the temple to the ground. Verse two in our text, look at it. Verse two tells us this letter was written sometime after that second pass, probably around 595 BC. To those people in that setting, Jeremiah writes this letter. These are prisoners of war, exiled from home, wondering what happened to them, and most of all, what happened to the promises of God. And here's the question on their hearts. How now do we live? God's people, in a strange place, living among foreigners who hold all the power over them and have no respect for them at all. Jeremiah's letter answers that question for them and for us. I say it answers the question for us because, friends, if you're a Christian, you might recognize the portrayal of these people as a description of you as well. People who belong to God but are living in a foreign place holding little power and receiving even less respect. I don't know if that's how you feel at all, but what's true of these Jews physically is true of Christians spiritually. The New Testament tells us that we are strangers and exiles. That we actually, when you place loyalty, when you transfer your loyalty to Jesus of Nazareth, God transfers your citizenship from earth to heaven. We're now citizens of heaven, but we live on earth and we feel as a result out of place here. The gospel that is shaping what we love, how we think, that gospel puts us out of step with everything that these people value. All of their priorities. It's all different between them and us. So how should we live during a time of worldwide upheaval? Friends, I don't know if it's news to you, but secular Western culture is dying. It's melting down before our eyes. Do you see it? There's no sense denying it. 
New world powers are arising. I don't say that to scare you. That's just the reality. It looks by all indications that America's day, the West's day, is passing. Bad leadership in our country is epidemic, isn't it? And we, as Christians, are exiles. Does God's word have anything to say to people like us in this moment? Yes, it does. Jeremiah 29. Here's a letter written to exiles. And here's the message of Jeremiah 29 in a nutshell. Exile is God's gift to secular cities and perceptive saints. Exile is God's gift to pagan cities and perceptive saints, where the people see nothing but disaster and loss. Jeremiah sees opportunity in the hand of God. Look at verse 4. Verse 3 names the couriers who carry the letter, but look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Wait, what? Read that again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom, whom, who sent into Babylon? What does verse one say? Who took these exiles to Babylon? Not a trick question, right on the page. Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar took them to Babylon. Who does history tell us took the exiles to Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. Who claims ultimate responsibility for the fate of these exiles? God does. It's right on the page. The biggest question facing these exiles is where is our God? And he answers, I'm right here. I'm in charge of all this. I'm accomplishing my purposes right here, right now, in this moment. How often we need to be reminded God is in charge of our present. It's so much easier for us to think that he was in charge of the past now that we can see it with 2020 vision. But the present? It's way more difficult to believe God's in charge, especially when everything seems to be going the wrong way like it was for these people. Yet God immediately reassures them, no, you should be here. I sent you here. I have purposes for your being here that nothing else could accomplish. Why? Because exile is God's gift to pagan cities and perceptive saints. How so? Three ways. We'll just go through them real quickly, right in order. Jeremiah 29 offers three principles by which we can live as exiles and three practical ways to demonstrate exile is God's gift. Number one, exile positions you to bless your city. We'll see that in verses four through seven. Number two, exile requires you to attend to God's word. We'll see that in verses 8 and 9, and then from 15, really, to the end of the chapter. And then thirdly, exile invites you to seek spiritual renewal. All right, three principles. Let's look at them in turn. I hope your eyes will be on the page, because it will help you to see that I'm not sucking this out of my thumb. This is right from the letter Jeremiah wrote to these people. This message comes to you from God. So, number one, exile positions you to bless your city. We already read verse four, but look at it again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. 
The point of that's pretty clear, isn't it? The people are encouraged to settle down and create new lives for themselves in this pagan place. Raise families, multiply. And apparently they were free to do so. They weren't treated as slaves. They had their own civilization, their own little, their own little cloistered area there in, in Babylon where they could raise families. So Jeremiah says to them, the Lord says to them through Jeremiah, this may not be your permanent home, but it is your present home and you should view it that way. And friends, I think I just want to distance us a little bit from a certain flavor of Christianity that views this world with disdain. It's not your permanent home, but it is your present home. And so that old gospel song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, is not entirely true. This world is your home for now. It's not where you're going to be forever. But God has you here at this specific time in this specific place for his particular reasons. You can imagine how surprising this would have been to these Jews. I mean, Babylon was the land Abraham was called out of. The promised land is where they were supposed to be. They shouldn't be here. But the surprise at being told to settle down and raise families and create a culture, their surprise at what they read in verses four through six would have been nothing compared to what they felt after reading verse seven. Look at verse seven. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What? They would have felt like, you can't be serious. Babylon is a nation of pagans who don't know the true God. They attacked us unprovoked. Some of us lost family to their ambition. And we're supposed to pray for their blessing? We're supposed to seek their welfare? You can't be serious. The word welfare in Hebrew is a word that you might know. It's the word shalom. It would have been well known to these people. It would have rung in their ears. Shalom contains the idea, not just of peace, but of full human flourishing. A setting where all is well, where life is good. What verse 7 is calling these Jews to do is make life as blessed and fruitful for the Babylonians as possible. Why? Two reasons that are given in verse 7. Look at it. There's a practical reason. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's a pretty straightforward reason, right? You live here now. When here flourishes, you will flourish. And then there's a divine reason. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. That's why that the Jews are supposed to seek the welfare of Babylon because the Jews are the ones who have access to the one true God. They're the only ones who have access to the one true God. So they, as his people, have a unique opportunity to bless these pagan people that no one else had. So God gives these people and us a whole new perspective on what it means to live in exile. But wait a second, is this actually a new perspective at all? Is it a new idea to call the Jews to live for the blessing of the people around them? No. This is inherent in the whole covenant God made with Abraham, isn't it? Do you remember this? 
from Genesis chapter 12, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. God's just calling them back to his original vision for them. And so this is exactly what Daniel and his three friends did, wasn't it? This is exactly what they did. We know Daniel had access to some of Jeremiah's writings because Daniel tells us that in chapter 9, that he was reading the book of Jeremiah. Daniel and his three friends were among the earliest exiles. They were taken probably 10 years before this letter was written. And this is exactly what they did. They adapted to life in Babylon, didn't they? They sought the welfare of their new city. They prayed for its blessing. They even accepted certain aspects of Babylonian culture. They accepted new names. They received an education in Babylon. They took new jobs in the government. Now, they didn't accept everything, did they? They rejected a diet that would have been contrary to their law, and they rejected the worship of the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up of himself because they worshiped the one true God. But why did they take that approach? Because this is exactly what God told them to do through Jeremiah. Don't merely accept your position as exiles and wait for deliverance. Embrace this moment as a gift from God for the welfare of this pagan city. Friends, do you see the application to us? God intends for your labor in this city or wherever it is you work, the tech center in Denver, down in Castle Rock, God intends for your labor to promote the welfare of your city. There is a direct connection from this text to the way we spend most of our lives. Most of the hours of your week, Monday through Friday, are spent in work, life in the public square, the marketplace, relationships, social engagement and activity. Question, does all of that have any value to God except as an opportunity to create maybe some space for evangelism? Well, yeah, even apart from evangelism, it has benefit and value to the people around you and thus brings glory to God. Your labor blesses the people around you. God is keenly interested in human society, daily work, civic engagement. He's not just focused on the church. He's not just focused on missions. One reason you are here is to be a gift to your city. Bring shalom to your neighborhood. Bless your town. So let me encourage you. Strongly avoid isolating yourself and your family from the pagan Babylonians around you. Strongly avoid that tendency. Avoid an attitude toward the culture that is excessively hostile and combative. Jeremiah doesn't embrace everything about Babylon. In fact, Jeremiah preaches pretty strongly about the coming judgment on Babylon. Chapter 25 is full of that. Chapters 50 and 51 picture that. There will be judgment on this wicked city. But the role that we have in our town right now is to be an agent of God's blessing. So if you are already plowing value into the community where you live, keep that up. Your neighborhood, your town, your employer, they all should be better off because you are there doing your best to bless the city. And if you're not doing that, Let me encourage you to work out practical ways you can seek the welfare of the people who live right around you. The people with whom you rub shoulders every single day. Why? Because exile is God's gift 
to pagan cities. You are his gift to pagan cities. Your presence here is meant to bless your city, just like Jesus, right? Isn't that just like Jesus who came from somewhere else into exile for the benefit of everybody else, not himself? Well, exile is God's gift first because it positions you to bless your city, but second, because it requires you to attend to God's word. Jeremiah brings up a second concern in verses 8 and 9. Look there and make sure that I'm not making this up. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it's a lie they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. what's, What's going on here? What's he describing? Well, false prophets were running rampant. First, they predicted that Jerusalem would not fall, that everything would be fine, and it fell. After it fell, they predicted this period of exile will not last very long. You can see that at chapter 28, right at the beginning of chapter 28, just prior to this. False prophets are saying this is only going to last a couple of years and the yoke of Babylon will be broken. No, none of that's true. Look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you all my promise and bring you back to this place. You know what Jeremiah is doing? He's calling out all of those other messages as fake news. That stuff's all been made up. It's all sucked out of someone's thumb. These false prophets abound, Jeremiah says. They are a danger to you and they will be judged. This is fascinating to me. The only warning in this letter and the only possible thing that could keep them from the hope and the future of blessing God has promised them is that they will listen to the false messages. There's no warning in this letter about idolatry. There's no warning in this letter about oppressing the poor. All of those were problems they had back in Jerusalem. But now the only problem that they're facing is that they might listen to falsehood. They might be taken captive to a message that's not true. The big question is, to whom will they listen? Where will they get their news, their truth? Look at verse 19. This is where Rick ended the reading. Verse verse 18, the Lord says, I will pursue them with sword and famine and pestilence. Verse 19, why? Because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. It's the classic question, very prominent in the world of psychology, self-improvement, therapy, the classic question of perception versus attention. You know the difference, right? Perception Perception is the activity of the mind that takes in everything that's going on around you. Noticing, apprehending, just being aware. We can't help what we perceive. Attention, however, we can help. That's what your brain picks up and chooses to focus on. Notice the words again of verse 19. Because they did not pay attention to my word. Oh, they heard the word. They perceived it. They were aware of it. They just didn't take it seriously. They didn't attend to it. So why is this important? 
Because living in exile surrounds you with all kinds of claims that promise a glorious future. All kinds of gospels that tell you this is the path to life and blessing. This is what you need to do to get your life in order and to be renewed. Living in exile surrounds you with messages like that. It requires you to make a choice. Whose message will you pay the most careful attention to? And so let me just clarify it for you. What is the central message of Christianity? And let me give you a hint. It's not do better, work harder. That's not what makes Christianity different. The central message of Christianity is that Jesus of Nazareth, by his perfect life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection, has done everything necessary for all of us to be renewed, personally and culturally, spiritually and physically. That's the central message of Christianity. That's the path to joy. We, we find our life, as Jesus said, by losing it, by surrendering everything to him and following him. That's the central message of Christianity. Our culture has the same goal, life and joy. But they have whole different means to get there, don't they? How does our culture think we are going to create the best possible world? Well, power in the Supreme Court. If we just get political power, that will lead to life and joy. It's a false gospel, friends. To which message are you paying the most careful attention? Or our culture tells us that the path to life and joy is by personally being beautiful and popular and compelling. Or rich. Or having everything and being everything. That that's the path to life and joy. Financial prosperity. We live in Douglas County, most of us. The central god of Douglas County is a great family. If you have a great family, wonderful, healthy kids, accomplished, earning college scholarships, then you are validated. That's the path to life and joy. No, friends, all of these are different gospels. They all claim to lead to life and joy. Which one will you focus on? How many of you have read... Animal Farm, George Orwell's short little classic. Put your hands up good and high. Excellent. About half of you. Rick, you need to read this book. Um, I noticed he didn't have his hand up. <laughs> Animal Farm is George Orwell's uh, effort to expose all of the, all of the, essentially the internal poverty and, and tragic sameness of Socialism, communism. The animals throw off the power of the farmer and they take over the farm and they all become equal and they're all equal workers. But the pigs are actually the ones who are the smartest and the ones in charge. There's one noble character in Animal Farm. It's Boxer, the big workhorse. Boxer doesn't understand everything that's happening, but he has two things that he does understand that he keeps repeating to himself. Number one, I must work harder. Number two, Napoleon is always right. And Napoleon is the leader of the pigs. And Boxer just, every time something happens that he doesn't understand, that's what he attends to. I must work harder. Napoleon is always right. And as things on the farm get worse and worse and worse, that's what he keeps repeating to himself until finally Boxer is sold off and turned into glue. 
And the point Orwell's making is clear. If you don't attend to the right truth, no matter what it promises you, it will lead to your destruction. Friends, that's what's happening all around us in our world. That's why Western civilization is melting down because they've attended to the wrong truth. So here's the question. What will you attend to? As a Christian who has the gospel, what prophetic message controls your outlook? Quite literally, how much time by attend, I'm using that word very, very deliberately. By attend, I mean, to what do you give your attention how much time do you spend taking in Bible as contrasted with taking in media? Exile forces you to make a choice. Most people hear about a 30-minute sermon once a week, and if they're really devoted, they'll spend 15 minutes a day reading or studying their Bibles. You've got maybe three hours of Bible exposure up against dozens of hours of media exposure. Exile forces you to make a choice. Will you attend to the word of God or will you attend to all the other gospels that are crying out for your attention all around you? Friends, when I was preaching about blessing the city, some of you are young. Some of you are in your 20s and 30s. 20 and 30 year olds tend to hear that message from the Bible and be like, yeah, let's bless the city. And, and, and the older folks are sitting back kind of going, this is a broken city. Why would I polish the brass on a sinking ship? But now I'm talking about paying attention to the Bible and the older folks are like, yeah, read the Bible more. And you 20 and 30 somethings are like, yeah, I don't have time for that. Besides, it's kind of boring. So there's applications going both ways here right now. Do you feel that? We need both of these things to live well in exile. But let's get to number three. Exile invites you to seek spiritual renewal. Exile invites you to seek spiritual renewal. There are all these ways that exile is a gift to pagan cities and perceptive saints. Exile positions us to bless our city. Exile forces us to attend to the word of God. But look at what else God is up to in exile in verse 10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and all places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Just imagine for a moment these exiled Jews and how that in all of their hatred toward and anger at the Babylonians, all of their frustration with and confusion about God, there's got to be a lot of doubt about themselves. We did this. We deserve this. We're nobodies anymore. We lost everything God gave to us how sweet this word would have sounded to them, right? Is God still angry? Is he finished? Have they broken the covenant too badly and are they past all redemption? No, God wants to reassure them. Even in exile, the worst possible circumstances cannot prevent his good purposes for them. 
What a renewing, hope-giving, life-giving message that would have been to them. Verse 11, I know we're in June, but graduations just happened a month ago. Some of you probably got this verse on a mug for your graduation. It has nothing to do with you. (laughs) Sorry to tell you. And it certainly doesn't have anything to do with you having a bright, prosperous future. It just doesn't. That's not what this, this, this verse is about, right? Now that you understand the context a little bit, do you get what's going on here? This is a surprising word of hope to a people who stand under God's judgment. It's not a glib promise of some happy, easy future that when I head off to college, all will go well for me because I've always been a world beater. No, that's not what's going on at all. It's an amazing affirmation that even through the fires of God's judgment, we can hope in his goodness. Why? What is it a promise of? Not just some outward prosperity, but inward spiritual renewal. What is the hope and the future? Well, verses 12 through 14 define it. Look, look right at it. The hope and the future is a renewed relationship with God. You will seek me. And find me when you search with all your heart. Friends, exile is a gift to perceptive saints because it's an opportunity for spiritual renewal. When everything else is melting down around us, what do we as Christians learn all over again? God is our only hope. He's what we need. He's what we've always needed. And he's always been there. He's given everything he can. Do you see Jesus in these three principles for living in exile? Jesus was the ultimate exile that came to bless the foreign city. He carefully attended to God's word and he says over and over and over again, I say nothing, I do nothing except what I hear from the Father. Why? So that all who come to him could be spiritually renewed. Exile is, in this sense, a reenactment. Exile properly lived is a reenactment of the gospel. Friends, chapter 30 makes clear, just one chapter later, makes clear that God had to send these people into exile because their wound could not be cured any other way. But what was he up to? Curing their wound, healing their wound. He wanted to heal them. He wanted to fix them. Exile is the chemotherapy necessary to cure them of the deadly cancer. They don't get that taken out of their lives. They never are what they should have been. So friends, what if the meltdown of Western culture is an opportunity for the church after spiritual renewal to make a difference here like we never could have made otherwise? See, Jerusalem is filled with empty religion and it needs spiritual renewal. Do we see that in the church today? Oh yeah, a lot of empty religion and it needs spiritual renewal. Babylon is filled with secular power and it needs spiritual renewal. And where do both get renewed? From a little tiny remnant of Jews in Babylon who just go, I'm gonna seek God with all my heart. And that's what we see Daniel do, don't we? He starts praying. In redemption, that's the call on us to just pray, seek God's face, 
pursue spiritual renewal for ourselves because it's through a tiny little remnant that he could heal our family, heal our church, heal our town, and heal the world for God's glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us absorbing this text, receiving the message of this text, help us to receive our exile as a gift. Help us to recognize we're in position to bless this pagan city around us and find practical ways to do it. Help us attend to your word better than perhaps we've been. And please, as we seek, will we find you in spiritual renewal. For Christ's sake we pray, amen.